The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, so this is the first of a brief study, uh, six weeks, I think, on gender and sexuality, uh, sexual identity. Um, and uh, we're going to be walking through. There's so many different things that we could do with this. This morning, I want to get off uh, on, the, on the start of just embracing the concept of gender, male and female, as, uh, as a good thing from God, biblically defined. Uh, we can go in a number of directions from that basic definition of, of sexuality or gender biblically. Uh, in the past, uh, we're not doing that in this class, we go into <clears throat> gender-based roles in the church and at home. That was a whole different class that I did. This one's going to go more toward the direction of gender-based sexuality and addressing the topic of homosexuality and transgenderism. That's really where we're going to go. But the starting place would be the same for either one. You know, we, we begin by defining genders uh, biblically, and then uh, you could go toward gender-based roles in the church and in the home, or you could go toward the other, and we're going to be moving in that direction, but not today. Uh, today, we want to start with the topic of, of gender and sexual identity uh, defined biblically, and the foundation really in creation. Uh, one of the things that we have to do as the church is we have to be continually immersing our own minds in the Word of God. Uh, we, we understand that as we think, so we will live. And if you want to live differently, you have to think differently. If at any point we recognize that we have sinned, we have to trace it back to some prior thought processes that were, that were corrupt. Uh, so how you think, how you live, they're, they're linked together. I'm thinking, of course, of Romans chapter 12, uh, which says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, not only that, we have to be mindful of the, the need of the hour. We have to be mindful of specific attacks that the devil is unleashing against biblical truth in our day. And I, th I find it fascinating in my lifetime, my whole adult lifetime, how this topic has been under attack, under satanic attack, my whole adult life. And that I've seen it getting progressively worse. The devil is after the topic of gender. Uh, and it's, it's going more and more to like new places I never even would have dreamed of when I was uh, a teenager, that, that we would even get to the level of, of confusion on something as basic as gender. So for us, what we need to do is come back to the scriptures and, and renew our own minds, be sure, certain that we uh, have good biblical doctrine on the topic of gender and sexuality, that we're living a holy life, that we ourselves are living a life beyond reproach. But then we have to be specially... I think trained, skillfully trained, to be able to refute faulty arguments uh, and be able to rescue the perishing from the deceits of the devil, that we can do it in a winsome and a loving way. You know how it says that we should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. What do those words mean to you? That, that we should be able to give a, a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. What do those words mean to you? I love it. Anyone else? With gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. 
Yeah, it's very easy to shoot the messenger, uh, but it's a lot easier if they're coming off in a very, very arrogant, uh, harsh way. One of the things that one verse that I'm quoting, 1 Peter 3, doesn't mention, but it is mentioned in other places, is the issue of humility. That we should be re uh, ready to give a reason for the hope that we have and the salvation that we have with humility. Why would that be important in this topic? Humility. Yeah, and I think in this topic, I've seen that in the evangelical world. There's a sense of moral superiority on this topic. Uh, because I think for some people, and I think I understand this, just coming the way I'm wired, the way I think, some of these things are just, for me, hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand how someone can mentally get to certain places that I can't imagine myself getting to. And if, you, if you're, you're there, you say, I would never think this, I would never do that. That may well be true. But that doesn't give you a, a position of moral superiority to somebody who's gotten there. You struggle with other sins, and they're just as repugnant to God. And you've been delivered by the same blood of Christ that you're hoping that this person is going to be delivered from, by. And, and you want to give a sense of the joy and the freedom that comes from that, not a sense of judgmentalism or moral superiority because you don't struggle with that sin. But to say, as I think what Craig was saying effectively, there but by the grace of God go I. I mean, do you really think that you could choose a sin pattern that other people struggle with and that you could say, on my own, apart from the grace of God, left to the devil and the demons, I would never be maneuvered to a place where I would ever think like that and commit that sin. Do you think you would be willing to make such a boast? I would never make that kind of a boast. If the Lord pulled the wall of protection away from me and left me on my own to face the devil and the demons, and they've been tempting people for millennia, they're good at it, there's really no pattern of sin I think that my corruption couldn't embrace, even though I've never thought that way before. So there just needs to be this sense of humility. There needs to be this sense of, of love. But that doesn't mean that we deny the truth. We want to be like... like uh, um, physicians under Christ, the great physician, physicians of the soul, and it will not help people to get a misdiagnosis. It will not help us to define the terminal cancer that they have as a, as a, as a head cold and say things that it will not help them on judgment day. We have to keep telling the truth, and that's where the idea of speaking the truth in love comes in. All this is just by way of introduction. Yeah, Ray. Yeah, I, I perceive in, in some in the church um, a, a a mistaking of, of a genuine broke, broken-hearted compassion for people, there being a short step from that to actually telling them lies, things that are not true about their condition. To say, for example, homosexuality is not a sin. That's not going to help them on Judgment Day. It's not true. Uh, the Word of God is not going to change. And so just because we feel a heart of love for a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody who's brokenhearted, going through a lot of emotions on a topic, it will not help for us in compassion for that person to stop telling them the truth. So there's got to be a way to hold on to the truth. And the way we do it is just going back to the Scriptures. So we are interpreting the Scriptures and trying to understand and drink in the truth, but we also need to interpret and understand our day. We need to interpret and understand the culture. And so we're going to start with the second, and then we'll go quickly over to the first. So what's going on in our day? What are some of the topics uh, that have happened even recently, current events that cause us to realize why we're here in this room today? There is an attack, a satanic attack on the concept of gender. I think for us living in the state of North Carolina, we don't have to wonder too much what kind of current events there have been in the last couple of years on this topic. So I go immediately to the famous bathroom bill 
or HB2, uh, which I didn't realize the technical name uh, for it, uh, Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, or also known as, here's a longer uh, title, an act to provide for single-sex multiple occupancy bathroom and changing facilities in schools and public agencies and to create statewide consistency in regulation of employment and public accommodations. I'm like, aren't you glad you're not a lawyer or a legislator? I mean, you gotta come up with these words, you know, in a law that will stand all of the, the conditions and situations. But I don't fully understand everything, but I think what happened was the city of Charlotte, you know, was trying to, under pressure from the LGBT community, uh, started doing some things with public bathrooms. And then the state legislature, uh, you know, people we would consider politically conservative reacted and, and uh, there's a, a whole journey. And then the community, I mean, the, uh, the nation uh, started reacting to what, what happened with HB2 in our state. And so on it went. Um, all the way up to the Supreme Court. So highlighted the issue of transgenderism, uh, which was not a major feature when I was growing up. It wasn't something that we thought about or talked a lot about. I think we would acknowledge, even the LGBT community would acknowledge a very, very vanishingly small percentage of the population struggle with gender dysphoria, which we'll define in a minute. Um, but just uh, voted in this bill and uh, to require people to use the bathroom of their birth gender. This produced a firestorm of opposition as though this were a civil rights movement, you know, era, just like, like back in the 1960s on, on skin color or race. Uh, significant entities protested HB2 like PayPal. Uh, the ACC pulled its uh, basketball tournament from Charlotte, I think it was, uh, but definitely from North Carolina. NCAA did the uh, same thing, several companies we're pulling their businesses from North Carolina. Many famous people, including Bruce Springsteen, Mike Krzyzewski, Roy Williams, Michael Jordan, many spoke against it. And it seemed that for people that were just kind of maybe uh, in a knee-jerk sort of way, jumping on it at, without really looking into the issue, thinking of it as a civil rights issue. And one of the things that we as Americans seem to prize above anything else is tolerance at this point, uh, wanting the kind of a tolerant society uh, but added transgenderism into that. It seemed for them that gender has become something elastic, something self-defined. Now, if you look at that, you can, if, you, if you have a seasoned theological eye, you can see Satan's dark wisdom in all of this. The idea that gender is something that really is self-defined. How do you see, kind of it makes sense that Satan would want to trick us in that, even if we don't struggle that way, but that, that we would all come to believe that gender is something self-defined. Why would that really fit into Satan's whole program? He is the author of confusion. Let me press on and go a little bit deeper. Um, basically, Satan's own rebellion had to do with his desire to topple God from the throne of the universe. And God's clearest statement on himself is, I am who I am. God is self-defined. We are all creatures, and therefore we are God-defined. That's a big difference, don't you think? God is self-defined, we are God-defined. And you just need to accept that. Like Paul says to the Corinthians, who made you different than anyone else? It's, we should not assume that he's saying you're not different than anyone else. No, you are actually. There are very significant differences between us. The question is, who made you that way? 
And what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? We don't like that. Satan doesn't like that. Satan wants to be God. He wants to be able to say, I am who I am. See, same thing with uh, Queen Babylon and Isaiah. Uh, you know, you said, I am, and there is no other. That's God language. That's Babylon, the city, the empire, the empress queen defining herself. And it's, it's just really, really interesting how we buy into that and we're saying, okay, I'm going to define who I am. And on the issue of sexuality and all that, that, when it comes to homosexuality, that's a fundamental flaw in the thinking. I will not accept how God has defined me. I'm going to be self-defined. And I'm going to reject what God says about me, etc. Conversely, and we're going to find in the sermon this morning, it's really remarkable. We're going to come back again maybe one more time to the issue of slavery. And the issue that right there in Revelation 22, it says his slaves will serve him. And you're like, wow. I mean, at the very, very end, in the new Jerusalem, in the new universe, there's still this issue of slavery. I'm going to talk about that in the sermon. But it's like there is zero negative about it in heaven. But what it means is at last, God's servants have accepted their role of who they are. They're created to serve him. And they're happy about it. They're not fighting it anymore. They're not fighting God the King and his right to command. And anyone who would fight it is, is gone. They're in the lake of fire, led by their king, Satan. They wanted to be self-defined. They wanted to be their own kings and queens or gods and goddesses. They wanted, and they're, they're in the lake of fire. They've been removed. Everyone that's left is centered around in concentric circles around the throne and delighted with the throne. So this is actually not a minor deal. Even though there's only, what, 700,000 transgender people in the, in the country, a vanishingly small percentage of 320 million or however many our population is, small number, that's not the issue. That's not the point of the numbers. And, and it's not the issue for the other side, your debating parties, they, part, partners. They don't think it's a big deal how many there are either. The issue is the principle. And that's where they get the idea of, of it being like a civil rights issue of self-definition. Self and so this is the very thing where we say we can't yield on this. You will be happiest and most delighted, most fruitful if you submit to Christ the King, if you take his yoke upon you and learn from him and humble yourself and follow his commands and his definitions and his portion for your life. That's where fruitfulness comes. The problem for us is when we're rebellious against that and fight it. So that's, I think, fundamentally what's going on here. It's not, not the issue of, a, of the bathroom and all that. I actually used a unisex bathroom up in Boston recently. I had an odd, odd circumstance. I was with my son. We were at a, uh, a dessert coffee bar place in Boston. It was kind of interesting, and it was, it was really a, a nice atmosphere, but both uh, Nathaniel and I needed to use the restroom, and uh, so he was walking. In between us, there was a person um, with long, straight hair and a kind of a slender figure, but I didn't see the person's face, walked right in the men's room, and I'm like, hmm. Yeah, I'm in Boston now. Um, <laughs> just need to know my home state. I'm like, okay, this is just straight weird. And I, I pulled back, and there was a family bathroom to the left, and I was delighted. You know, it's the kind where you can lock the door, and you're in there, and I just used it. So it turned out to be a guy. He actually had facial hair. I just didn't see his face. Um, but it was just an odd moment. And see, that's on video. I don't know what we're going to do with this video here. But... Um, <laughs> And you're like, Pastor, what's that story? What are you saying? Guys can't have long straight hair. It's not that. I'm just telling you I kind of freaked out. And I was like, you know, I was in Boston. And I was like, I don't want to share the restroom here. 
But um, it goes, but honestly, my point is it goes deeper than all of that. It really, we need to see through, keep going, keep asking, why, why, why? Is this a satanic attack? I think so. All right, why would he do it? This is the, this is like the final stop of the why question. Satan, I think, is doing it to get us to get on his program of an anti-God kind of self-definition thing. So, yeah, go ahead. I hear you. Um, but here's the thing. Our desire is to liberate people from Satan's kingdom. Uh, we want to, I feel, you know, like Jesus said, uh, on this rock, I will build my church and uh, the gates of hell or Hades will not prove stronger than it. So the church is attacking the walls and gates of hell or Satan's dark kingdom. So I, I look on us like spiritual ninjas crawling up over the wall, dropping in, rescuing some people and all that. Uh, I don't know, different things, but we are on an assault mission. And when you get there, you're going to find people who are on mental, spiritual bondage. And you have to, by the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, set them free from those, that mental bondage. And so this is the core issue, I think. If you ever are talking to someone who is homosexual or transgender and you want to see them set free so that, like it says in Corinthians, such were some of you. How is it that they now repudiate that and now they know themselves to be in a very healthy way, male, you know, heterosexual, I've been healed. How does that happen? Well, it happens by Satan's lies being refuted by the Word of God. And I think, at least this is my estimation of the core lie. And that is the rebellion of a creature defining him or herself as over against what the Creator says. And that's what we want to see them set free. We want them to become servants of God, yielded to Him, taking Jesus' yoke upon their necks, finding that, that, that His yoke is easy and His burden is light, and submitting for the rest of their lives to God's definitions and God's commandments and through Christ. That's a beautiful life. That's the life we were made to have as human beings. All right, so we're not even on the handout, but we'll keep going, all right? All right, so some key definitions. Gender identity <clears throat> refers to an individual personal sense of identity as masculine or feminine. So that's the key, the idea of what do you feel? How do you sense it? Or some combination thereof of masculine or feminine. And then there's the other definition, which is gender dysphoria or transgenderism. Gender dysphoria, formerly gender identity disorder, is defined by strong, persistent feelings of identification with the opposite gender and discomfort with one's own assigned sex that results in significant distress or impairment. People with gender dysphoria desire to live as members of the opposite sex and often dress and use mannerisms associated with the other gender. For just simply, I'll say this multiple times, where I'm not going to focus today on how to minister to transgender people, what what names to call them, what pronouns, all these ethical issues. It's a hard thing. But um, for me, I, I can't be persuaded to move off of the conviction that transgenderism is mental illness, not much different than, um, than an eating disorder like anorexia nervosa, in which someone has a faulty self-image, in which they think they're overweight and they're not, and they're going to stop eating to the point of death. And everyone knows around them that you don't feed their delusion by telling them that they could lose a few pounds. Everyone knows not to do that with anorexia. But in this case, they don't seem to know to not feed the delusion. 
I think it's almost a perfect analogy, and I think we ought to just hold on to it. It's like, it does, it does that person no good for me to feed their delusion. I want to tell them the truth, and I want to help them to see the truth and embrace the truth before they die, literally, because the suicide rate's 40% for these people, whether they get surgery or not. Actually, the surgery doesn't change the suicide rate, 40% either way. That's horrible. It's worse than survivors of the Holocaust. <laughs> I mean, in other words, you think about people afterwards and all the horrors that the Jews saw in the late 1940s and all that, they had a certain suicide rate measurable. This is like more than double that. It's a very, very sad, terrible thing. And we can see Satan in all of it where he deceives people and makes them utterly miserable and enslaved to a mentality that he is a murderer and he murders by lies. So anyway, that's what we're looking at. Another, there are other craziness like in the school system where you know you don't want to have what's known as a gendered space so imagine an elementary school or middle school where you're not supposed to say boys over here girls over there whatever so they're going to create other binary distinctions like do you like summer or winter better you know or do you like spicy foods or not spicy you know whatever but what you don't want to do what's actually forbidden in some of these school districts is to create a gendered space or to get kids to think of themselves as male uh, or female. So there's all this uh, written. You can read it. Uh, this one, this was on Twitter. I don't know how this, how I got hold of this one. This was tweeted. Why do people think it's okay to call babies he or she? They can't speak yet, and so they can't say their preferred gender. Please refer to them as baby self or toddler self until they can say their pronoun preference. Otherwise, you're ableist and transphobic. Well, I had to look up ableist. Never heard of it. <laughs> Ableism is a form of discrimination or social prejudice against people with disabilities. So that would be the newborn infant. The newborn infant has a disability of being prelingual. <laughs> and so they don't know. But here, they actually would go so far as to say it's a form of child abuse. Now, I'm thinking this is just normal. The child is born. Most people ask, is it a boy or a girl, before they ask if, they, if it's healthy. But it's like one of the top two questions Every mother and child, all right, is it a boy or girl? But I actually think we generally ask boy or girl first. And honestly, this is how we live. You genderize somebody almost as soon as you see them. In a crowded mall, you just, you got 86 people and you got them all, for the most part, if you can. All right, uh, there are some that's a little confused. And some people want the confusion, you can't, you can't tell. And, and in some cases, it's intentional by hairstyle and dress and all that, I get it. But I'm just saying normally, just almost immediately, you know, older woman, little girl, you know, teenage boy. I mean, you just do it. And it's just, uh, it's just normal. But, you know, the, these folks are actually going the other way. So far, the other way is to say it's a form of child abuse, frankly. And they actually have transgender camps for little kids, kids in elementary school, whatever. And I just think you talk about child abuse, the shoe's on the other foot. They're immersing these little kids in their bizarre worldview, and they're training them at a very early age. It's very sad. So fundamentally, then, gender is something that one chooses. It's not something that, that is assigned. Obviously, those that are arguing against this whole view say, like, how long does it last? I mean, you could be X in the morning and Y in, in the afternoon or evening. It's all what you feel. And so that is, uh, again, you can see how closely related to theology and truth and light and dark all of this is. Uh, it's like nothing, nothing solid, nothing secure. There's no rock that doesn't move.
Everything's open for redefinition. Again, I think I can see Satan's uh, plan in all this. Uh, I read this article uh, some time ago in the New York Times. A unity, uh, university recognizes a third gender, neutral. All right? It was written about a person named Rocco Gieselman, University of Vermont student, who classifies her gender as neutral. The article is written about many themes, including a new look at gender-free pronouns. So there's the chart. If you feel like you're back in elementary or middle school on grammar, there's, there's the chart. So I'm not, I can't even pronounce some of these things. But, you know, it all just comes down to the pronouns. Are you saying he or she, you know, him or her, that kind of thing. Gieselman prefers the formally plural they, them, and their approach. So listen to her mother talk about uh, her in this new pattern. Sarah Miller, Gieselman's mother, said that when her teenager, her teenager, apparently Sarah doesn't mind being called her, anyway, first came out to her and offered uh, to provide a pronoun chart for reference. She scoffed. At the time, it irritated me to no end, said Ms. Miller, a social worker. I was like, really? This is what our struggle is going to be about? Pronouns? But Ms. Miller has learned to accept the person her former little girl has become. It's grown, and I'm going to do my best to read this. I don't think I've ever read this through without making a mistake, but I'll do my best. It's grown out of the process of really seeing how Rocco has grown as an individual and as an adult, seeing how Rocco is their own person and not a child. This is how they present themselves to new friends. So the normal would be this is how she presents herself, but now it's plural, to new friends and colleagues. That group only knows Rocco that way. So anyway, this is, this is just lots of evidence, and you all can multiply these stories. You know what, I'm, what we're talking about, that there is a confusion, to put it mildly, uh, or more of an organized attack on the concept of gender and sexuality. All right, so let's move towards some summary statements made by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood um, about why they exist as a group and what they're about, what they're trying to do to try to refute and uh, what are some of the things that they're looking at. Before we do, there's a, a Bible verse that I have in, in mind. I would love it if somebody could look it up. Isaiah 5.20. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment and then we'll go on because I've alluded to it, but I want to read it. Anybody have a, have a Bible? Isaiah 5.20. Did you hear that? Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What, what is Isaiah talking about there? All right, so definitions, definitions. You think about how God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. You know, there's a sense of naming, but it goes deeper than that. They're defining good now as evil and evil as good, right? Um, they're defining light as darkness and darkness as light. They're, they're turning around bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, to some degree, you could say that all three of those in the Hebrew poetical style are talking about the same thing, evil and good. The last one, sweet and bitter, bitter and sweet, um, could be the same because we prefer to put sweet things in our mouth and not bitter, so it could be the same thing. But it could be just a general kind of elastic approach toward the world that we live in, in which, uh, similar to like the whole postmodern thing, it's all what it is for you. It's your interpretation, how you look at it, and all that matters is how you define it. And for us, we know as Christians, there is an external definition to which we must conform. We need to conform. Ultimately, all of our salvation 
has to do with conforming to an external standard, who is Christ. That God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we are going to end up made like Jesus, conformed to him. He's not changing. We're changing. And so we are being made to conform to an unchanging standard. But Isaiah 5.20, I think, is a very relevant verse for our society, our culture. People are redefining things, and they're switching things around. It's self-definition. All right, so, yeah, Rick, go ahead. No, no, I mean, that's genetic. And, and we, we argue, and we will argue that, I mean, we've got theology, uh, scriptural truth. We embrace that, but there's just biology as well. And that is that you are the gender God chose you to be from the moment of conception. And every cell in your body is lined up with that ge- uh, genetic reality. So, for sure. Um, and and I, I think the, that the transgender folks or the LGBTQ people, etc., are not denying that biological reality. To do it would be foolish. But they're just saying it's not relevant like it used to be. It shouldn't be relevant. You know, what your birth gender is, your biological gender, should not define you. Your feelings, your sense of it. That's what matters. And that's, you know, for us, obviously, that's a problem. All right, so the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood uh, sees this going on in society. First of all, gender confusion in the home. Husbands fail to exhibit humble, loving leadership of their family. Wives fail to exhibit willing, intelligent submission to their husbands. Motherhood and homemaking are often viewed as secondary responsibilities. Parents fail to be intentional in encouraging biblical masculinity in their sons and biblical femininity in their daughters. There's also gender confusion in the church. Churches divide over ministry roles of men and women. There is a subjective sense of calling often used to set aside biblical criteria for ministry. And feminist ideology influences church theology and practice. Uh, Also an acceptance of homosexuality. By the way, the, the whole thing started with feminism and then feministic roles in the church, like women, pastors, etc. Early, early on, some saw that the next move was toward embracing or, or accepting homosexuality within the church. We're way past that. But when we first started looking at it, that was vigorously denied. Vigorously denied. Uh, they, by evangelical feminists, they're saying that we believe that women can be pastors. We do not accept homosexuality. But, you know, when you're arguing from Galatians, in Christ there's neither male nor female, and you're doing that with that verse, then that also works for accepting homosexuality. If that's what you're doing with Galatians 3, it's, it's not really hard to see the next step. And we're, we're so far past that now, and you're seeing that kind of supposedly evangelical rhetoric on homosexuality and eventually transgenderism as well. So Satan is very clever. He knows what he's doing. Um, but this was, uh, the, the ministry began... Uh, focused on gender roles in the church and also at home. Also, uh, so acceptance of homosexuality, secular homosexual agenda influences church theology and practice. Confusion exists regarding maleness and femaleness. And then revisions of the doctrine of God. Some evangelical leaders and churches encourage encourage referring to God as mother. Changes to the Trinity are being proposed in the areas of language and relationship. I'll say this, the Trinity is a complex doctrine that none of us fully understands. And I feel uh, safest when I stick closest to biblical texts. And the same thing has to do with the so-called gender of God the Father. God doesn't have a gender. He's never been human. He never will be human. That's not it. The question is, what language does he choose to use to reveal himself to us? 
That's the issue. And we're, it's not for us to rewrite the Bible and to rewrite, you know, our Father in heaven and add words so that it lines up with our feelings or our cultural sensibilities. So I, I think for us, we just need to be humble and accept the scripture as it's written and understand God as he said he is to us. Uh, so it leads to gender neutral language in Bible translations. Many translations systematically omit uh, masculine oriented details of meaning. Uh, especially problematic for gender neutral folks is the um, patriarchal society of, of the Old Testament. The fact that the Bible is overwhelmingly written from a masculine point of view, it can't be. I mean, even the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, they weren't thinking about lesbians. It's written from a masculine point of view. And godly women have been reading it like that for millennia and have not had a problem with it. I mean, if you look at the book of Proverbs, it's overwhelmingly written as advice from a father to a grown son of how to carry himself as a godly young man. Women read that and have read it for years and don't stumble over it. It's, you can't get rid of the masculine bias of the book of Proverbs. It'd be very, very, di I mean, I don't know how you would do it. Because the final thing, the, the wife of noble character is clearly advice given by a mother to a grown son of what kind of woman you should marry. I mean, you can't get rid of it. It's just woven through. But the NIV uh, went more or less gender neutral with the TNIV, and it was really so, it was such a marketing failure. People were not ready for it. But now the NIV 2011 is more or less the same thing, and I just can't embrace it. But all of my scripture memory is done in the NIV 84, so what can I do? You know, it's in my head, and I think it's a good translation, but they changed it. You know, they changed it. So all of these were reasons why uh, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood um, uh, came together. Um, also, the Danvers Statement in 1987. Danvers is just a few miles from the seminary that I went to. Uh, it's in eastern Massachusetts, just a, a city in eastern Massachusetts, but this is the statement. Uh, in, De in December of 1987, the newly formed Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood met in Danvers, Massachusetts to comp uh, compose the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And they drafted a series of assertions on biblical manhood and womanhood. You can re read it online. Uh, it's a good statement. Uh, generally, it, the, the view is known as complementarianism, the idea that men, uh, mas masculinity and femininity, men and women complement each other and have different roles and different purposes in God's wisdom. And they do their best to understand that and define it. And it's a good statement. But the, the question is, why did they meet? Why did they gather? What forces in society did they see in 1987 that led them to come together and discuss this? We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments, which we observe with deep concern. I would say, if anything, these things are more pronounced now and other things besides. Anyway, the, number one, the widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. Uh, the tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. Thirdly, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism with accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in Scripture between the loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. Fourthly, the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women. Fifth, the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, <clears throat> and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. 
Sixth, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. Seventh, the emergence of roles for men and women in church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching, but backfire in the crippling of biblically faithful witness. Eighth, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutical oddities devised to reinterpret apparently plain meanings of biblical texts. So there's a science of how to approach problem texts. And it's, it's poison. I mean, it, you'd start doing that, and, and really at that point you're saying, okay, what's going to be left standing? Because Satan's not going to stop at gender. He's going after the deity of Christ. He's going after everything that matters. But if you accept a faulty hermeneutic, and hermeneutic is the, the science of right interpretation of the Bible. That's what we're talking. So how will you approach any text? Part of, part of my agenda as I preach verse by verse is to teach people who listen to me how to approach texts of Scripture. That's what I'm trying to do, so that you can have good quiet times throughout the week. Because I really believe if you have a robust devotional life, that'll be far more impactful than any of my preaching will ever be. Because I get you for about, I'm not boiling the frog, I get you for about 48 minutes a week, 45 minutes, and I'm not looking for any more. Um, but you can teach yourself every day. I just would like you to do it well. I'd like you to rightly divide the word of truth for yourself. So I try to model that in various genres of scripture. Apocalyptic's the hardest of all. So if you can do well with apocalyptic, then it's just going to be so much sweeter. But, you know, this hermeneutic is poison. When you start shifting your rules, you're reprogramming the machine to fit your preconceived agenda. That's a very bad system towards scripture. and It's going to lead to devastation. Ninth, the consequent threat to biblical authority is, as the clarity of Scripture is jeopardized and the accessibility of its meaning to ordinary people is withdrawn into the restricted realm of technical ingenuity. Let's put it this way. If you're not a New Testament scholar expert, you can't understand it. That's about what they're telling you. Where you're like, I thought I could just read the Bible for myself. No, I know it seems to say X, but it really doesn't. Let me tell you for 53 reasons why it doesn't seem to say it. That takes the Bible away from the common people. It's very, very deadly. And then 10th, and behind all this is the apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age at the expense of winsome, radical biblical authenticity, which in the power of the Holy Spirit may reform rather than reflect our ailing culture. In other words, what kind of people do we need to be to be God's servants for this hour. Not like this. We need to be courageous and strong and stand on the rock of the truth and love people humbly and lead them to the truth. That's the whole approach, even in this class. That's what our friends, our unsaved friends, need from us. That's what this society needs from us, for us, us to, be, to be salt. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, right? So what does it mean? What does that mean to you? How, if the salt loses its saltiness, what does Jesus mean by that? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Salt of the earth means we are put here to preserve the piece of meat from corruption. Salted beef lasts a lot longer because salt is a desiccant and moisture carries bacteria. And so the idea is we're supposed to retard the spread of evil in the world. But if rather than retarding the spread of evil in the world, we become evil ourselves, then we're good for nothing. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Rick, 
I love it. And I, I, there's a lot of different ways we could say what you just said. Another is, think of it this way. How will this look on Judgment Day when you're standing before Christ? He's not going to change his standard. He's not going to change his word. So our, our job is by faith to project forward to Judgment Day and prepare people for Judgment Day. And the only way sinners can be prepared is by a genuine faith in Christ and by calling light, light, and darkness, darkness. So that's, that's what we want to do. It's not because it's inconvenient or shameful or any of those things. All those things may be true, but the real issue is that God, the Creator, the King, has given us laws. He's given us His Word by which He is going to judge us. All right, um, the effects of feminism. Some aspects of the feminist movement have been helpful, but only as defined biblically. So the reason we're even mentioning feminism, this is where it all started, um, you know, a number, a number of decades and decades ago. And you're like, how do we go from feminism to transgenderism? Well, it's just you can, yeah, actually you can trace the dots, but it's step by step by step of questioning gender-based roles and, and then gender itself. And it just, you can see, trace out the lineage. Some aspects of the feminist movement have been helpful. We need to re- recognize that, but only as defined biblically. I actually just think the Bible's sufficient. I mean, treat women the way Jesus did. I don't think you can do any better than that. Treat men the way, the way Jesus did, that Jesus is a standard. And it's not like we have a very narrow corpus of how Jesus would have treated women because I just accept the whole Bible as the word of Jesus. And so if you have, you know, the wife of noble character, Jesus would embrace that and say, yes, that's a noble woman. So at any rate, um, so that's, that's true. Certain unbiblical denigrations of women have been part of the pridefulness of men and have been worthy of opposition. But the overarching goals of feminism are unbiblical. And that is basically a gender blindness on roles in the church and in the home, at least. That's not biblical. And the denial, denial of significant gender. And this is a key, a key statement here. And this is any of you that have growing children still at home, or even if you don't, even if you have grandkids, or even if you just care about kids growing up in America or in our churches. Little help is given to a son's question Dad, what does it mean for me to be a man and not a woman? Or a daughter's question, Mom, what does it mean for me to be a woman and not a man? I mean, you can see how helpless 21st century American general culture is at answering those questions. I mean, it basically doesn't mean anything to be a man and not a woman or a woman and not a man. If you can change that same day in the morning and in the afternoon... Etc. Do you see what I'm saying? So what we want to do is we want to see, is there a biblical answer to that question? How do I raise a masculine son in the biblical sense? How do my wife and I, how do we raise feminine daughters in the biblical sense? That's what we're looking at. All right. So the issue, the fun, any questions as we go on now into the content? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be vital for us. Um, and, and there's just there's so many things that, that we, we could say and need to say, and we'll, we'll get there in, in just a moment. I'll just quickly tell you that, like, when I come to premarital counseling, um, I start in Genesis 1, and I say the most significant thing about each of you as, as you get married is that you're human. You're created in the image of God. I mean, gender is mentioned. We'll get to that in just a moment. It is mentioned, male and female. But it's not in any way described or defined or whatever. So you start, the most significant things about you throughout your marriage will be that you're human, and secondly, that you're redeemed by the blood of Christ, that you're Christian. And those will be equally true of both of you. No difference at all. No distinction at all. No, there is no distinction in Genesis 1. All right? And so you start there. 
So with a five and a half year old, I'm going to start with you as a human being. What, what you are is you are created in the image of God. You're created for a relationship with God. And I would say the exact same words to a daughter. All right, we'll start with that. And, but then, is that the end of the story? No, there is a Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, there begin to be gender-based roles. And they're wonderful. They're not bad, they're good. So, but they're not as important as the other. They're, they're based on the other. I mean, if, we're not, if we don't exist as humans, then there's no need for gender-based roles because we don't exist. But it starts with we're human, we're creating the image of God, fallen into sin, true of both of us, redeemed by the blood of Christ, headed for a glorious eternity, which I get to talk about week after week for another few more weeks. All right, that's true of everybody. And, and so you start there. The things that are true of both of us are more important, frankly, than the things that are only true of the one or of the other. But it doesn't mean that the things that are only true of the one or the other are not important or should not be taught. And that's what this class is about. They are important. All right, so let's uh, sexuality, uh, the fundamental thing. We've already said it. Uh, our gender is important to us. No matter what the world tells us, it's almost like the emperor's new clothes. Everybody's saying the same thing. Doesn't make it true. I am a man. My wife is a woman. Praise God. I am so glad that I'm a man. And I am so glad that she's a woman. All right? Absolutely. And, and I, my desire is that each of you would be able to say that. I am absolutely thankful to God for what he made me to be. And actually, we go beyond that. I'm thankful to God for what he made you to be. I mean, God is wise and loving so that we actually, in a very healthy way, embrace and accept what God has done because he is good. He is a good, loving being. But it's fundamental. Paul Jewett in Man as Male and Female said this, sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth. It conditions every facet of one's life as a person. As the self is always aware of the self as an I, so this I is always aware of itself as himself or herself. Our self-knowledge is indissolubly bound up, not simply with our human being, but with our sexual being. At the human level, there is no I and thou per se, but only the I who is male or female confronting the thou, the other, who is male or female. So that's a lot of words to say, this is important. Our sexuality is important to us. You can't deny it. You can't squelch it. It's important. All right, so biblically, gender is raised at the first passage when humanity is mentioned. Can someone read this for us? Genesis 1.27. So God created them, male and female, in the image of God. So the fact that male is in the image of God and female is in the image of God is important. But the fact that there is such a thing as male and female is important too. If it were not important, it would not have been mentioned so prominently. Jesus quotes this very passage um, and by the way, my approach to gender-based roles in marriage came from Jesus' teaching on marriage in Matthew 19, from looking at what he quotes. It was just an insight that I had. It's like, wow, he quotes Genesis 1, and then he quotes Genesis 2. And then it started getting me to think, all right, what, what's Genesis 2 like, and what's Genesis, Genesis 1 like, sorry, and what's Genesis 2 like? And so Genesis 1, no gender-based distinctions at all, just a recognition of gender. Genesis 2 gender-based distinctions. And I think that's really, you know, I, and that got me to think of a priority structure that what's true of us in Genesis 1 and then later redeemed through the blood of Christ is more important than uh, the gender-based roles. But that doesn't mean gender-based roles aren't important. So that's how we do it. All right? 
So God created us, and then Jesus quotes, someone read this for us, Matthew 19, 4 and 5. They come to him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is Jesus' answer. Someone read this for us, Matthew 19, 4 and 5. Right, his citation of Genesis 1:27 just totally squelches and crushes any view to excuse Jesus from talking about homosexuality or, you know, gay marriage or anything like that. This, I think, settles it. He mentions gender, male and female, and then define and talks about marriage. So I know there's no overt prohibition type statements from Jesus, but again, I don't care that much about it because I'm not going to totally embrace the red letter edition approach to the Bible. If the apostle Paul writes it, Jesus said it. So fundamentally, gender mattered to Jesus. At the beginning, he made them male and female. So what we want to do is just look at it as a good, beautiful thing that God has done. We don't fully understand it. It's hard to define. Honestly, masculinity and femininity are really hard to define. You know, people have tried, it's hard to do, all right? But you just kind of know it. You can see a, a kind of an arrangement. If, if, you know, uh, a man's acting like a woman, we know what that looks like. There's just an answer. It's just hard to, hard to find. Just because you can't really define it doesn't mean we don't know it. We know what's going on. But masculinity, femininity, we want to just start with God is glorified in this. It's to the glory of God to have done this, to create uh, male and female. And so it is a glorious thing for all you men to be men, to be male. It's a very good thing. You should never be made to feel ashamed of being male. And I almost feel like there's some of that going on. Uh, conversely, it's been the other way for a long time, too. There's no shame at all, obviously, in being a female, being a woman. So we have to see the glory of God in this, and the wisdom of God in this. God knows what he's doing. Therefore, we have to have, as Christians, both offense and defense. We have to have a positive presentation of the glories and delights of biblically defined gender. And then a defense against Satan's attacks in this area, as we've, we've been discussing since we started today. There are just some key texts, and I didn't list them all here. So Genesis 1 through 3, male and female, he created them. Uh, Ephesians 5, it's really pretty hard to understand what it means to be a man and not a woman, or a woman and not a man, apart from Paul's teaching on marriage, I think. You know, that, that the husband is given the Christ-like leadership redeemer servant role and the wife is given the responsive submissive recipient type role i think that's going to end up being pretty important in defining masculinity and femininity it's i i don't actually have any other way to get at it other than that if you start using adjectives like compassionate kind tender heart or whatever men are called to be jesus was that Talk about boldness, courage, whatever. There's some women that are far more courageous and bold, especially at the time of childbirth, than any man will ever be. All right? <laughs> Just the ability to be courageous and go through with a very difficult and painful thing, I clearly will never know. So it's very hard to define. So uh, what's common between men and women? Both created equally in the image of God. Both equally fallen and in sin and needing a Savior. Uh, both equally saved by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, both equally valuable and fruitful members of the family and of the church, <clears throat> and both equally heirs of the gracious gift of life, a glorious future in heaven, and worthy, I would add, it's not listed there, but worthy of rewards from God, from Christ the Savior. Think about the woman that gives the two copper coins 
And Jesus celebrated her saying she gave more than anyone else because her level of sacrifice was greater than anyone else's that day. So to me, that's a porthole into a very surprising judgment day in which some unsung heroes and heroines are going to be celebrated in ways we could have never have predicted. And I think that's pretty cool when you think about that. So both men and women are going to be honored by Christ the Savior and celebrated for their sacrificial service. So I think that's... All right, so that's what's the same between them. What's different between men and women? Well, men are given the responsibility for biblically described and mandated leadership in the home and the church in ways that women are not. So that's a difference. Men and women play different roles in the procreation and rearing of children, obviously biologically, um, but also in other ways that also are hard to define. And you don't want to overstate yourself because obviously like a a woman dying in childbirth, the uh, husband and father is now a single parent and he's got to be able to raise the daughter, let's say, or the son. And we're not going to say that he is stilted and unable to raise a healthy child just because there's no mother there, or conversely, the same thing. But still, there are differences in the way that, that mothers interact with their children, the way that, uh, that fathers interact that is beautiful and helpful and beneficial. And we want to celebrate it. So there's some differences. And men and women are intrinsically equipped by God for their varying roles in ways that may actually even be impossible to define. Like if I try to put words to it, somebody could say, yeah, but I've known women that X or I've known men. You know, I, I agree. I'm telling you, it's just hard to do. But God knows what he's doing. And I think if you just start with the Ephesians 5 general view of Christ and the church and think of it that way, there's going to be a kind of a healthy kind of genderizing that will enable us to start answering the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? I think that's a good home base to start. A godly Christ-like leadership is masculine and a godly feminine intelligent submission is feminine. I think those are differences between them. Other than that, you're just talking about things that are the same. Like all people, humans, are called on to be compassionate to the poor and needy, are called on to be tender-hearted when somebody's hurting, uh, called on to be courageous and bold at key moments, all of us. So it's hard, hard to find. All right, so we're going to stop now. We'll get to the definitions of manhood and womanhood from uh, John Piper and Wade Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, You can read it ahead of time, but we'll start there next week. All right, so let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.